Welcome to HubSpot's Unconventional Business Podcast. I'm your host, James Gilbert. The best companies are the ones that make it incredibly easy and delightful to do business with. It's seamless, frictionless, intuitive. It's not just a better experience, they're actually disrupting our very notion of what consumers should be able to expect from companies. You see, Aussies and Kiwis are a hard bunch to please. We have some of the highest expectations in the world, and luckily for us, our homegrown businesses know this. This season, on HubSpot's Unconventional Business, you'll be meeting some of our best homegrown brands as they share how they're growing and winning by disrupting the customer experience. Let's meet today's guest. Today's guest joins us from a very exciting Australian brand and leader in the e-commerce space. They've disrupted their industry and they look like they've had a lot of fun while they're doing it. Welcome Peter Sloterdijk, the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Technology Officer at Koala. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So I think a lot of people in Australia by now are pretty familiar with Koala, but for those people that might not have encountered your brand or one of your uh, pretty funny billboards, can you give them a bit of an explanation on what Koala is and what they do? Absolutely, I can. Koala is a furniture and lifestyle brand that is focused on sustainability, simplicity, and taking all of the uh, consternation out of the e-commerce experience as much as possible. Um, our goal is to be as simple and straightforward about our offering, uh, to ensure that we're doing everything we can to do right by the world and the earth that we inhabit, um, and uh, like you said, have a fair bit of fun doing it uh, while we're at it. So how did it actually get started? So I think that speaks to like the brand as it is now. I think when it started was purely mattresses online, was it? Yep, absolutely. So we started as a um, as the uh, colloquial bed in a box brand, um, one of the first to the scene in Australia. Uh, Mitch and Danny, the co-founders, uh, saw a, a really big opportunity in the space, um, specifically around mattresses, but always with the idea that we would become a furniture brand. Um, and so th the idea was take all of the friction, all of the challenge, all of the um, kind of negative pieces of the experience of buying a mattress out of the experience altogether. How can we make it a, a, extremely simple, um, make it as risk tolerant as possible, right? So we've got our 100, 120 night trial. Um, we've got really fast delivery in our major metro areas. Um, so all of this can happen because Mitch and Danny set it up in a way that it was really direct and simple and taking all of the for lack of a better phrase, bullshit out of the experience. And the name Koala, like why, why that name? So there's a fair few uh, pieces of lore around the, the koala name and how we got there. <laughs> yeah. um, but the reality is, is that it, it is a beautiful Australian representation, right? We, we, uh, the, mm -hmm. the name is because the, the, the business was built on Australian roots, um, truly with the idea that it's all designed uh, in the context of Australia. Everything we're doing is based in Australia, although, of course, we're looking yep. to export it globally. Um, and, and koala is one of the best representations um, of a true Australian brand. That makes sense. I feel like it's a, a there is the Australian made uh, logo. I'm not sure if you've seen before, which is a mm -hmm. kangaroo. I think yep. uh, if you can't get the kangaroo, koala is probably the the absolute next best. Absolutely, <laughs> exactly. You've got koala, <laughs> kangaroos, and wallabies, right? Like that's that's about what you got to choose from. <laughs> do you do something around koalas though as well? Mm -hmm. I feel like I read a while ago about some program you do. 
Yeah. So we have a great partnership with the World Wildlife Foundation. So for every mattress you buy, we ad adopt a koala. Um, basically, it's, mm -hmm. it's through a donation um, experience to support all of the conservation work um, and, pr and habitat protection work that World Wildlife Foundation is doing specifically in Australia. Um, we have a few other animals that we support with some of our other products, the turtle, uh, sorry, the, the giant sea turtle, the uh, black cockatoo. There's a few others. And we will continue to expand that partnership as we expand our range um, because we're really yep. proud of the work that we get to do with World Wildlife Foundation. When you started, I know uh, purchasing a mattress online was a very new experience. I think people mm. had previously always done that in a store. What, mm. uh, what do you think made that experience work? Like, why were people willing to do that when they hadn't done that for the longest time? And why were companies like you the ones to, to be able to deliver on that? So I think one of the really interesting things around e-commerce as just a concept, right, is that it's all happened really quickly. Um, now, e-commerce has existed for a while, but it continues to build on itself. And new products that we always thought were physical retail experiences are now, you know, participating in the e-commerce experience. It's not just clothes. It's not just Amazon. There are so many other opportunities for us. With the mattress specifically, even expanding to furniture um, as a category, all consumers uh, in in kind of all developed countries are used to that being a physical retail experience. I think the reason they were willing, customers are today willing and, and were willing at the beginning of Koala a few years ago, um, are, are willing to sort of take that leap is because we're de-risking the experience. Um, we're giving the 120 night trial. We're making sure that it can get to your door as quickly as possible. Um, we're taking sort of uh, as much as we can towards the instant gratification opportunity within e-commerce. That's part of the, the beauty of e-commerce right is that it can deliver um, that dopamine hit or the product yourself that you want um, it can deliver that really quickly i think because we took the risk out of it um, that allowed a, an initial subset of people to really engage in mattress and furniture um, as a, a dtc concept um, as a, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce concept now what we continue to build upon as an industry, not just Koala, but as an industry, is the beauty of word of mouth, right? So the pool of people that are willing to purchase products online continues to grow because of their community's experience doing so. Um, so that community experience continues to be positive, then the word of mouth continues to be positive and we continue to bring new customers in. It's a beautiful, virtuous cycle. One of the things I always wonder about is how long does that cycle go for? Like, I think you touched on it that uh, we're actually probably still early-ish in the e-commerce journey. Mm. Um, how, if for you all, it sounded like you had a group of like early adopters that were willing to try buying a mattress online and were satisfied. And then they probably tell their friends who mm. were more conservative, less willing to do it, but the word of mouth from their friend made them willing to do it. Do you think you're still very early in that addressable market of people looking for a mattress? I do. I think that we're pretty early in the experience, both on a global scale and in Australia, right? So we mm -hmm. have the opportunity, we are we are currently operating in Japan and we have our sites on, on other countries in the near future. And every market is a different experience for sure. The trends are a little bit different. The cultural nuances obviously are, are a necessary piece of the puzzle. But um, one of the things that remains true is that purchasing furniture online, mattresses and other pieces of furniture, 
is still a new experience for folks, right? Mm. So we're used to buying clothes, we're used to buying electronics, we're used to buying um, household goods to some degree, even the idea of groceries, uh, you know, being purchased online and delivered to your house. All of those are starting to be normalized. Um, so they're probably, you know, 50% ahead of us um, in terms of furniture being a, a DTC opportunity. And, and I believe that the, um, that the market share that is available is really quite sizable. You, you talk about mm -hmm. like, is there an end to that cycle? I don't know that there's an end to it, but I do think that there's a, a continuation of it, right? So if you buy just a mattress online, you your brain might still not think, oh, I can go buy a sofa or I can buy an armchair or a dining room table or whatever. Um, but it mm. turns out that you can, but there's another barrier to jump over uh, there. So either the word of mouth or advertising or whatever the, the piece is that kind of tips you over the edge. Uh, you know, my job is to, to identify those uh, opportunities to tip you over the edge and take the take the leap um, of buying some of those additional pieces online. So I think this cycle will continue for a, a good long while. And I think you've touched on it a bit that you've expanded as a company beyond mattresses into other forms of furniture. I think we've seen some direct-to-consumer mattress companies go public in the US and um, they've had a bit of a tough time. And uh, can you explain why that might be? Like in like my intuition thinks, well, it's probably like, well, you only buy a mattress once every like five years, 10 years, depending on your hygiene levels. Uh, and the that so your lifetime value is somewhat limited there. And I'm sure as e-commerce has risen, the cost to acquire a customer is is probably pretty high. Um, but can you I mean, this is your this is your world. I'm sure you've noticed yeah. that far more than the rest of us. So can you explain? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting um, to think about some of the challenges that um, that the bed in a box competitors have had in the US specifically and, and even in some in Western Europe. Um, Part of the challenge has been the balance of investment and profit. Some of the challenge has been, where do we invest? What does it look like? Are we investing only in marketing and product development? Can we do all of it at the same time? Um, and then the, the third component, I think, is really the, the consumer behavior around, as you pointed out, mattress buying. Every country has a different behavior around mattress buying. For example, in the US, um, consumers move more frequently in the US than almost any other country. Um, and so they're, they're moving on average about every 18 to 22 months. Um, so even before wow. the two year mark. Yeah, <laughs> up until uh, they're about 40, 45 years old. And because of that, there's actually a great deal of opportunity in the mattress market specifically, but even more so in the furniture market. So the way that we look at it at Koala is that the opportunity is in range expansion. We will always have what we believe to be the best mattress on the on the market. Um, we will always be innovating and trying to find new opportunities within sleep, but it's not the only area of focus for us because we believe that there's actually so much more we can do as a brand um, that, that we can apply our belief system and our brand propositions, our unique uh, USPs, we can provide that to the customers through a number of different products in addition to the mattress. So th there's a continued focus for us on range expansion while still protecting and um, supporting our key products. Well, I'm out of curiosity, why that 
the US, the frequency of moving, is that for employment or what's the driver? There's a lot of different drivers. Um, we're, as an American, I can say we're a rather impatient and uh, difficult to satisfy consumer in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're always focused as a culture, we're always focused on the next best and better. Um, so how yep. can I improve, whether that's from a self-improvement perspective, from an environment perspective, professional, um, all of those, the, the same ethos applies that we're looking for the next best and better. Um, and so that really turns in, uh, it kind of influences, I should say, uh, influences the the moving behavior or the, the relocation behavior. Sometimes it's down the street, sometimes it's to another state, sometimes it's to another city. Um, but the, the reality is that we're always kind of looking for an opportunity for improvement or to better our surroundings. Mm -hmm. And so that influences the, uh, uh, the indicator, the uh, inclination to move. That's really interesting. Do you think COVID is going to change that in any way? Mm. So what, what we've seen globally and locally in Australia um, is that COVID has had a really big impact on the way people consider the prioritization of their space, right? So uh, mm -hmm. everyone, you could say the the home office or the guest bedroom um, or even the, the sofa and the mattress that you have, they were ancillary parts of your lives uh, until COVID became a a, a key component um, of the way that we live. <laughs> yeah. So when you're right, when you're spending so much more time uh, inside on your furniture, you start to really consider what's around you, um, whether that is a quick refresh of the paint color or the wall art or the thing you're sitting on or, or you're sleeping on or spending eight or nine hours a day at, whether it you know, be your desk, your sofa or your bed. Um, from my perspective, it's been really interesting to watch the trends change in terms of where people are prioritizing their spending and where they're prioritizing their time and energy. Before uh, COVID, it was really focused on entertainment, on uh, going out to eat, uh, experiencing kind of the world around them, uh, consumers really globally and in Australia. Um, and now what we're seeing is, is sort of a refocus on the home. That may impact the frequency with which people move, but it will definitely impact the um, in levels of investment in the home and uh, the, the comfort that we have there. Yeah, I think uh, I'm actually a bit of a homebody normally. I think I have been joined by a legion of people that have been forced have to be indeed. homebodies, but now are like actually uh, making it more enjoyable to be at home. But mm. it's, it is interesting when you talk about people moving uh, I think COVID is stripping away some of the reasons people used to have to move. And mm -hmm. so then it's a interesting question of whether they'll still do it by choice or whether it was actually a forced thing and yeah. now they just don't have to as much. The entire professional community is getting more comfortable with the idea of a distributed workforce, right? So um, mm -hmm. the points of connection, the physical requirements of being in an office, et cetera, are waning. Um, across the world. Um, and so it's, I agree with you, it's really interesting to see some of those main motivators for relocation, i.e. A, a new job or a, the office moved or whatever the case might be. Um, those are no longer on the consideration set or they're not as high on the list. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. There will be, it will be so interesting to look back two, three, four years from now and see the spikes or the dips in all of the trends that we are measuring, um, both from a moving perspective, what we're investing in, um, how are the arts and, and entertainment going to recover? What is that going to look like? Um, we, we have a lot to learn in the next few years. And so it feels like as a company, there are two ways that you're really expanding it's how can we expand our range and sell more products to consumers where we've already built trust 
and then how do we expand internationally into new markets and bring our offering mm-hmm. there? How do you think about those two trade-offs? Because I think it's interesting where as you prove out a model, say in Australia, of selling mattresses online, it's like, oh, we could just take mm. this model to all these countries and we could grow that way. But then you have this longer-term ambition of selling more furniture to them, more products. And until you've done that, it's not really validated as a concept. And so like, how do you think about balancing doing that longer term, probably more sustainable motion of like, oh, let's really prove that we can sell Mm. multiple products to consumers in a market versus like, let's expand to new markets with what we're doing now. I imagine it's probably a constant debate internally. Well, it's interesting. I think that oftentimes in businesses, especially startups that are are turning into growth companies, right, that are kind of uh, edging out of the startup experience and into um, a mature company, which is where Koala's at, I um, I did disagree. I disagree with the con- concept that you have to choose one or the other and that there even needs to be a debate around whether you can expand as a company locally or can you look at, at additional international markets. Um, what we've seen work thus far is, you know, Japan has been a great learning opportunity for us. Um, what what can we export about an Australian brand? What do we need to add cultural nuance to? Um, what does that mean for our product range and influence from a Japanese audience? Obviously, the consumers need something different uh, in Japan than they do in Australia, um, both from a size perspective, from a way they live, etc. Uh, there is a lot at play here and there's a lot to learn but what we've found is that there's a great deal of synergy um, in in the idea of international expansion and range expansion right they actually end up being a little bit the same conversation internally because we're always talking about okay we know that we want to introduce additional products to solve additional challenges for our consumers but how globally applicable are those ideas going to be? That that becomes a new lens um, that we apply to all of our product development, oh, all of our marketing ideas, et cetera. So it, it really kind of comes together. Why Japan as a market? I know I've been lucky to experience the growth of HubSpot internationally and Japan as a market is one that is good, is, is a big market and is there a lot of opportunity it's also a very hard market. Sure. There's 200 and something countries, I think, in the world. 196. There's 196 countries in the world. I think 190 are pretty similar. And then you've got six that are radically different. You've got probably like, uh, I always include North Korea in the list. Uh, it's sure. very different. South Korea, Japan, Russia, uh, and, and China. That And China. But if you take those countries out, most other countries are pretty similar. Like you can almost, you know, make your way through without understanding as much of the cultural nuance. You go to those countries, you need to understand the cultural nuance. It's a very starkly different experience. So with that, why Japan as one of your, it sounds like one of your first international markets that you've put a lot of focus on. Sure. So I'll challenge the premise a little bit in that I think at a surface level, you're right that there are more similarities among countries than there are differences um, at, a, at a very kind of surface level. 
what is great from a digital product offering perspective is that it's really um, possible. It's really easy is not the right word, but it's very possible to adjust your technology, your digital product, whatever it might be to a particular location. Um, so, yep. you know, part of my experience at Netflix was learning about, okay, what do, what adjustments do we need to make to the Netflix brand, to our content offering, uh, to the way that the brand is positioned, et cetera, in a particular country, whether that's Ghana or Japan or uh, Tanzania or Luxembourg, right? All of them are in fact different and their content behaviors are different, et cetera. The same is true for furniture. When you're thinking about the way that you expand, it's just a lot longer process to make those adjustments. And so part of the evaluation internally has always been, okay, is this product, I'm gonna use a dining room table as an example, is a dining room table globally applicable? Does everyone have mm -hmm. the same requirements for the most part? Um, does everyone have the same requirements of a dining room table in every country? That dining room table is a good example to say like, yeah, pretty much everyone's looking for a four, six or eight seater. Everyone's looking for a flat surface to put their food on a, on plates, right? Like it's not a terribly um, nuanced concept. How people use a dining room table is nuanced, but not necessarily the product itself. But when you start oh, thinking about a sofa, Indeed. But when you start thinking about a sofa, it's a completely different experience, right? Because living uh, accommodations are different per country. Even if you take Japan and South Korea, uh, using some of your uh, countries that you were pointing out, Japan and South Korea, Japan is very small space oriented. It's uh, from a, a, a cultural perspective, you really live outside the home um, and, and your home itself doesn't need to be anything grand or ostentatious. No one is terribly concerned about a lot of space. And they're trying to make everything wildly efficient in their space. And so we can't launch with a three-seater sofa in Japan because nobody needs a three-seater sofa. They're maybe looking for a two-seater, possibly a one-seater. Um, and, and so it becomes a chair instead of a sofa. Um, and so that's when you start thinking about the way uh, that, that you have to apply differences. I'm going back to your question. I realized that I got off on a tangent. I apologize. Um, but on the Japan front, we chose Japan for two key reasons. One huge market opportunity, low competitive set, right? So we didn't have a lot yep. to fight against uh, in Japan. And the second opportunity uh, for us was around the fact that there is a connection, culturally speaking, between Japan and Australia. The Japanese uh, community has an appreciation for Australian made products, for Australian designed products, um, for the Australian culture. Um, so there was a really great opportunity to, to export an Australian idea, an Australian brand and an Australian product uh, to the Japanese audience. And how has that journey been? Has that uh, initiative pushing into Japan been successful from the start? Has there been interesting learning hurdles through it or yeah what's it being extremely like? interesting learning hurdles so when we first launched in Japan before I joined but when we first launched in Japan we truly exported the brand we made very little in terms of uh, adjustment or cultural nuance adding to the brand um, and so we actually launched with our sarcastic tone in Japan well it turns out that oh. sarcasm doesn't <laughs> exist as a cultural thing uh in yeah. japan at all there is no such thing as sarcasm um sarcasm it, is it, a it high risk there. form of humor to take it, it to other really countries. is <laughs> yes and, and especially australian sarcasm right because australian sarcasm is like built into the ethos of the australian way of life um it, it mm -hmm. is part of how the australian community communicates with one another it, even australian sarcasm 
doesn't work in uh, the UK or America or Canada, yeah. right? In the same way. Um, and so we we did absolutely make a mistake by launching in that way without kind of, I don't know, thinking more critically about it. We learned really, really fast. We were able to change course and adjust. Um, mm -hmm. Thank God for being a, a nimble, small, um, agile company that can make those uh, changes really quickly. And we learned on the fly, we made changes on the fly, and now we are really solidly successful in the context of Japan. We're I'm very proud of the team there and all the work that they're doing on a daily basis to increase awareness, to drive additional interest in the brand, um, and, and it's really working. That's amazing. Uh, the sarcasm bit, the Australian sarcasm, Koala sure. as a brand has really played into the Australian sense of humor in Australia in a really effective way through uh, its billboard advertising. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly how I first came to know about it. And I've definitely shared sure. some of your billboards around. Can you talk a little bit around like that strategy? Uh, it's interesting that we haven't given, as you pointed out, the Australian sense of humor. I actually haven't seen many brands uh, do that as well. In fact, I don't think I've seen any brand do it as well in Australia. Like, can you talk a little bit about that process and effectiveness? Absolutely. Thank you for the compliment. Um, you know what? And, and I can only, I can only take credit for things that have happened in the last six months. I, I, I want to be very clear that none of the, yep. the fantastic um, billboard stunts that took place in the last couple of years were my idea by any means. However, um, I, I can talk about the strategy and the ideas that go into it. There is a specific privilege associated with being a small, nimble, young company that has low awareness. Welcome to HubSpot's Unconventional Business Podcast. I'm your host, James Gilbert. The best companies are the ones that make it incredibly easy and delightful to do business with. It's seamless, frictionless, intuitive. It's not just a better experience. They're actually disrupting our very notion of what consumers should be able to expect from companies. You see, Aussies and Kiwis are a hard bunch to please. We have some of the highest expectations in the world. And luckily for us, our homegrown businesses know this. This season on HubSpot's Unconventional Business, you'll be meeting some of our best homegrown brands as they share how they're growing and winning by disrupting the customer experience. Let's meet today's guest. Today's guest joins us from a very exciting Australian brand and leader in the e-commerce space. They've disrupted their industry and they look like they've had a lot of fun while they're doing it. Welcome Peter Slotterdyke, the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Technology Officer at Koala. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So I think a lot of people in Australia by now are pretty familiar with Koala, but for those people that might not have encountered your brand or one of your uh, pretty funny billboards, can you give them a bit of an explanation on what Koala is and what they do? Absolutely, I can. Koala is a furniture and lifestyle brand that is focused on sustainability, simplicity, and taking all of the uh, consternation out of the e-commerce experience as much as possible. Um, our goal is to be as simple and straightforward about our offering uh, to ensure that we're doing everything we can to do right by the world and the earth that we inhabit. Um, and uh, like you said, have a fair bit of fun doing it uh, while we're at it. So how did it actually get started? So I think that speaks to like the brand as it is now. I think when it started it was purely 
mattresses online, was it? Yep, absolutely. So we started as a um, as the uh, colloquial bed in a box brand, um, one of the first to the scene in Australia. Uh, Mitch and Danny, the co-founders, uh, saw a, a really big opportunity in the space, um, specifically around mattresses, but always with the idea that we would become a furniture brand. Um, and so th the idea was take all of the friction, all of the challenge, all of the um, kind of negative pieces of the experience of buying a mattress out of the experience altogether. How can we make it extremely simple, um, make it as risk tolerant as possible, right? So we've got our 100, 120 night trial. Um, we've got really fast delivery in our major metro areas. Um, so all of this can happen because Mitch and Danny set it up in a way that was really direct and simple and taking all of the for lack of a better phrase, bullshit out of the experience. And the name Koala, like why, why that name? So there's a fair few uh, pieces of lore around the the koala name and how we got there, <laughs> yeah. um, but the reality is is that it, it is a beautiful Australian representation, right? We, we uh, the, mm -hmm. the name is because the, the the business was built on Australian roots, um, truly with the idea that it's all designed uh, in the context of Australia. Everything we're doing is based in Australia, although of course we're looking yep. to export it globally, um, and and koala is one of the best representations um, of a true Australian brand. That makes sense. I feel like it's a, a there is the Australian made uh, logo. I'm not sure if you've seen before, which is a mm -hmm. kangaroo. I think yep. uh, if you can't get the kangaroo, koala is probably the, the absolute next best Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. You've got koala, <laughs> kangaroos and wallabies, right? Like that's, that's about what you got to choose from. <laughs> Do you do something around koalas though as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like I read a while ago about some program you do. Yeah, so we have a great partnership with the World Wildlife Foundation. So for every mattress you buy, we ad adopt a koala. Um, basically, it's mm -hmm. it's through a donation um, experience to support all of the conservation work um, and pr and habitat protection work that World Wildlife Foundation is doing specifically in Australia. Um, we have a few other animals that we support with some of our other products: the turtle, uh, sorry, the the giant sea turtle, the uh, black cockatoo. There's a few others, and we will continue to expand that partnership as we expand our range um, because. We're really yeah. proud of the work that we get to do with World Wildlife Foundation. When you started, I know uh, purchasing a mattress online was a very new experience. I think people had previously always done that in a store. What, uh, what do you think made that experience work? Like, why were people willing to do that when they hadn't done that for the longest time? And why were companies like you the ones to, to be able to deliver on that? So I think one of the really interesting things around e-commerce as just a concept, right, is that it's all happened really quickly. Um, now, e-commerce has existed for a while, but it continues to build on itself. And new products that we always thought were physical retail experiences are now, you know, participating in the e-commerce experience. It's not just clothes. It's not just Amazon. There are so many other opportunities for us. With the mattress specifically, even expanding to furniture um, as a category, all consumers uh, in in kind of all developed countries are used to that being a physical retail experience. I think the reason they were willing, customers are today willing and, and were willing at the beginning of Koala a few years ago, um, are, are willing to sort of take that leap is because we're de-risking the experience. Um, we're giving the 120 night trial. We're making sure that it can get to your door as quickly as possible. Um, we're taking sort of uh, as much as we can towards the instant gratification opportunity within e-commerce. That's part of the, the beauty of e-commerce right, is that it can deliver um, that dopamine hit or the product yourself that you want, um, it can deliver that really quickly. 
I think because we took the risk out of it, um, that allowed a, an initial subset of people to really engage in mattress and furniture um, as a, a DTC concept, um, as a, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce concept. Now, what we continue to build upon as an industry, not just Koala, but as an industry, is the beauty of word of mouth, right? So the pool of people that are willing to purchase products online continues to grow because of their community's experience doing so. Um, so that community experience continues to be positive, then the word of mouth continues to be positive and we continue to bring new customers in. It's a beautiful, virtuous cycle. One of the things I always wonder about is how long does that cycle go for? Like, I think you touched on it that uh, we're actually probably still early-ish in the e-commerce journey. Mm. Um, how, if for you all, it sounded like you had a group of like early adopters that were willing to try buying a mattress online and were satisfied. And then they probably tell their friends who mm. were more conservative, less willing to do it, but the word of mouth from their friend made them willing to do it. Like, do you think you're still very early in that addressable market of people looking for a mattress? I do. I think that we're pretty early in the experience, both on a global scale and in Australia, right? So we mm -hmm. have the opportunity, we are we are currently operating in Japan and we have our sites on, on other countries in the near future. And every market is a different experience for sure. The trends are a little bit different. The cultural nuances obviously are, are a necessary piece of the puzzle. But um, one of the things that remains true is that purchasing furniture online, mattresses and other pieces of furniture is still a new experience for folks, right? Mm. So we're used to buying clothes, we're used to buying electronics, we're used to buying um, household goods to some degree, even the idea of groceries, uh, you know, being purchased online and delivered to your house. All of those are starting to be normalized. Um, so they're probably, you know, 50% ahead of us um, in terms of furniture being a, a DTC opportunity. And, and I believe that the, um, that the market share that is available is really quite sizable. You, you talk about mm -hmm. like, is there an end to that cycle? I don't know that there's an end to it, but I do think that there's a, a continuation of it, right? So if you buy just a mattress online, you your brain might still not think, oh, I can go buy a sofa or I can buy an armchair or a dining room table or whatever. Um, but it mm. turns out that you can, but there's another barrier to jump over uh, there. So either the word of mouth or advertising or whatever the, the piece is that kind of tips you over the edge. Uh, you know, my job is to, to identify those uh, opportunities to tip you over the edge and take the take the leap um, of buying some of those additional pieces online so i think this cycle will continue for a, a good long while and i think you've touched on it a bit that you've expanded as a company beyond mattresses into other forms of furniture i think we've seen some direct-to-consumer mattress companies go public in the u.s and um, they've had a bit of a tough time and uh, can you explain why that might be like in like my intuition thinks, well, it's probably like, well, you only buy a mattress once every like five years, 10 years, depending on your hygiene levels. Uh, and the that so your lifetime value is somewhat limited there. And I'm sure as e-commerce has risen, the cost to acquire a customer is is probably pretty high. Um, but can you I mean, this is your this is your world. I'm sure you've noticed yeah. that far more than the rest of us. So can you explain? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting um, to think about some of the challenges that um, that the bed in a box competitors have had in the US specifically, and, and even in some in Western Europe. Um, 
part of the challenge has been the balance of investment and profit. Some of the challenge has been where do we invest? What does it look like? Are we investing only in marketing and product development? Can we do all of it at the same time? Um, and then the the third component I think is really the, the consumer behavior around, as you pointed out, mattress buying. Every country has a different behavior around mattress buying. For example, in the US, um, consumers move more frequently in the US than almost any other country. Um, and so they're, they're moving on average about every 18 to 22 months. Um, so even before wow. the two year mark. Yeah, <laughs> up until uh, they're about 40, 45 years old. And because of that, there's actually a great deal of opportunity in the mattress market specifically, but even more so in the furniture market. So the way that we look at it at Koala is that the opportunity is in range expansion. We will always have what we believe to be the best mattress on the on the market. Um, we will always be innovating and trying to find new opportunities within sleep, but it's not the only area of focus for us because we believe that there's actually so much more we can do as a brand um, that, that we can apply our belief system and our brand propositions, our unique uh, USPs, we can provide that to the customers through a number of different products in addition to the mattress. So th there's a continued focus for us on range expansion while still protecting and um, supporting our key products. What I'm out of curiosity, why that the US, the frequency of moving, is that for employment or what's the driver? There's a lot of different drivers. Um, we're, as an American, I can say we're a rather impatient and uh, difficult to satisfy consumer in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're always focused as a culture, we're always focused on the next best and better. Um, so how yeah. can I improve, whether that's from a self-improvement perspective, from an environment perspective, professional, um, all of those, the, the same ethos applies that we're looking for the next best and better. Um, and so that really turns in, uh, it kind of influences, I should say, uh, influences the the moving behavior or the, the relocation behavior. Sometimes it's down the street, sometimes it's to another state, sometimes it's to another city. Um, but the, the reality is that we're always kind of looking for an opportunity for improvement or to better our surroundings. Mm -hmm. And so that influences the, uh, uh, the indicator, the uh, inclination to move. That's really interesting. Do you think COVID is going to change that in any way? Mm. So what, what we've seen globally and locally in Australia um, is that COVID has had a really big impact on the way people consider the prioritization of their space, right? So uh, mm -hmm. everyone, you could say the, the home office or the guest bedroom um, or even the, the sofa and the mattress that you have, they were ancillary parts of your lives uh, until COVID became a, 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 a key component um, of the way that we live. <laughs> yeah. So when you're right, when you're spending so much more time uh, inside on your furniture, you start to really consider what's around you, um, whether that is a quick refresh of the paint color or the wall art or the thing you're sitting on or that we're sleeping on or spending eight or nine hours a day at, whether it you know, be your desk, your sofa or your bed. Um, from my perspective, it's been really interesting to watch the trends change in terms of where people are prioritizing their spending and where they're prioritizing their time and energy. Before uh, COVID, it was really focused on entertainment, on uh, going out to eat, uh, experiencing kind of the world around them, uh, consumers really globally and in Australia. Um, and now what we're seeing is, is sort of a refocus on the home. That may impact the frequency with which people move, but it will definitely impact the um, in levels of investment in the home and uh, the, the comfort that we have there. Yeah, I think uh, I'm actually a bit of a homebody normally. I think 
I have been joined by a legion of people that have been forced have to be homebodies, but now are like actually uh, making it more enjoyable to be at home. But mm. it's it is interesting when you talk about people moving. Uh, I think COVID is stripping away some of the reasons people used to have to move. And so then it's a interesting question of whether they'll still do it by choice or whether it was actually a forced thing and yeah. now they just don't have to as much. The entire professional community is getting more comfortable with the idea of a distributed workforce, right? So um, mm -hmm. the points of connection, the physical requirements of being in an office, et cetera, are waning. Um, across the world. Um, and so it's, I agree with you, it's really interesting to see some of those main motivators for relocation, i.e. A, a new job or a, the office moved or whatever the case might be. Um, those are no longer on the consideration set or they're not as high on the list. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. There will be, it will be so interesting to look back two, three, four years from now and see the spikes or the dips in all of the trends that we are measuring, um, both from a moving perspective, what we're investing in, um, how are the arts and, and entertainment going to recover? What is that going to look like? Um, we, we have a lot to learn in the next few years. And so it feels like as a company, there are two ways that you're really expanding it's how can we expand our range and sell more products to consumers where we've already built trust and then how do we expand internationally into new markets and bring our offering mm -hmm. there how do you think about those two trade-offs because i think it's interesting where as you prove out a model say in australia of selling mattresses online it's like oh we could just take mm -hmm. this model to all these countries and we could grow that way but then you have this longer term ambition of selling more furniture to them, more products. And until you've done that, it's not really validated as a concept. And so like, how do you think about balancing doing that longer term, probably more sustainable motion of like, oh, let's really prove that we can sell mm. multiple products to consumers in a market versus like, let's expand to new markets with what we're doing now. I imagine it's probably a constant debate internally. Well, it's interesting. I think that oftentimes in businesses, especially startups that are, are turning into growth companies, right? That are kind of uh, edging out of the startup experience and into um, a mature company, which is where Koala's at. I, um, I did disagree. I disagree with the con concept that you have to choose one or the other and that there even needs to be a debate around whether you can expand as a company locally or can you look at, at additional international markets. Um, what we've seen work thus far is, you know, Japan has been a great learning opportunity for us. Um, what, what can we export about an Australian brand? What do we need to add cultural nuance to? Um, what does that it mean for our product range and influence from a Japanese audience. Obviously, the consumers need something different uh, in Japan than they do in Australia, um, both from a size perspective, from a way they live, etc. Uh, there is a lot at play here, and there's a lot to learn. But what we found is that there's a great deal of synergy um, in in the idea of international expansion and range expansion, right? They actually end up being a little bit the same conversation internally because we're always talking about, okay, we know that we wanna introduce additional products to solve additional challenges for our consumers, but how globally applicable are those ideas going to be? That, that becomes a new lens um, that we apply to all of our product development, oh, all of our marketing ideas, et cetera. So it, it really kind of comes together. Why Japan as a market? I know, 
I've been lucky to experience the growth of HubSpot internationally and Japan as a market is one that is good, is, is a big market and is a lot of opportunity. It's also a very hard market. Sure. There's 200 and something countries, I think, in the world. 196. There's 196 countries in the world. I think 190 are pretty similar. And then you've got six that are radically different. You've got probably like, uh, I always include North Korea in the list. Uh, sure. Very different. South Korea, Japan, Russia, uh, and... And China. That, and China. But if you take those countries out, most other countries are pretty similar. Like you can almost, you know, make your way through without understanding as much of the cultural nuance. You go to those countries, you need to understand the cultural nuance. It's a very starkly different experience. So with that, why Japan as one of your, it sounds like one of your first international markets that you've put a lot of focus on? Sure. So I'll challenge the premise a little bit in that I think at a surface level, you're right that there are more similarities among countries than there are differences um, at, a, at a very kind of surface level. What is great from a digital product offering perspective is that it's really um, possible. It's really easy is not the right word, but it's very possible to adjust your technology, your digital product, whatever it might be, to a particular location. Um, so, yep. you know, part of my experience at Netflix was learning about, okay, what do, what adjustments do we need to make to the Netflix brand, to our content offering, uh, to the way that the brand is positioned, et cetera, in a particular country, whether that's Ghana or Japan or uh, Tanzania or Luxembourg, right? All of them are in fact different and their content behaviors are different, et cetera. The same is true for furniture. When you're thinking about the way that you expand, it's just a lot longer process to make those adjustments. And so part of the evaluation internally has always been, okay, is this product, I'm gonna use a dining room table as an example, is a dining room table globally applicable? Does everyone have mm -hmm. the same requirements for the most part? Um, does everyone have the same requirements of a dining room table in every country? That dining room table is a good example to say like, yeah, pretty much everyone's looking for a four, six or eight seater. Everyone's looking for a flat surface to put their food on, a, on plates, right? Like it's not a terribly um, nuanced concept. How people use a dining room table is nuanced, but not necessarily the product itself. But when you start oh, thinking about a sofa, Indeed. But when you start thinking about a sofa, it's a completely different experience, right? Because living uh, accommodations are different per country. Even if you take Japan and South Korea, uh, using some of your uh, countries that you were pointing out, Japan and South Korea, Japan is very small space oriented. It's uh, from a, a, a cultural perspective, you really live outside the home um, and, and your home itself doesn't need to be anything grand or ostentatious. No one is terribly concerned about a lot of space and they're trying to make everything wildly efficient in their space. And so we can't launch with a three-seater sofa in Japan because nobody needs a three-seater sofa. They're maybe looking for a two-seater, possibly a one-seater. Um, and, and so it becomes a chair instead of a sofa. Um, and so that's when you start thinking about the way uh, that, that you have to apply differences. And going back to your question, I realized that I got off on a tangent. I apologize. Um, but on the Japan front, we chose Japan for two key reasons. One huge market opportunity, low competitive set, right? So we didn't have a lot yep. to fight against uh, in Japan. And the second opportunity uh, for us was around the fact that there is a connection, culturally speaking, between Japan and Australia. The Japanese uh, community 
has an appreciation for Australian made products, for Australian designed products, um, for the Australian culture. Um, so there was a really great opportunity to, to export an Australian idea, an Australian brand and an Australian product uh, to the Japanese audience. And how has that journey been? Has that uh, initiative pushing into Japan been successful from the start? Has there been interesting learning hurdles through it? Or, yeah, what's it been? Extremely like? interesting learning hurdles. So when we first launched in Japan before I joined, but when we first launched in Japan, we truly exported the brand. We made very little in terms of uh, adjustment or cultural nuance adding to the brand. Um, and so we actually launched with our sarcastic tone in Japan. Well, it turns out that oh. sarcasm doesn't <laughs> exist as a cultural thing uh, in yeah. Japan at all. There is no such thing as sarcasm. Um, sarcasm it, is it, a it high risk there. form of humor to take it, it to other really countries. It really is. <laughs> yes. And, and especially Australian sarcasm, right? Because Australian sarcasm is like built into the ethos of the Australian way of life. Um, it it mm -hmm. is part of how the Australian community communicates with one another. It, even Australian sarcasm doesn't work in uh, the UK or America or Canada, yeah. right? In the same way. Um, and so we, we did absolutely make a mistake by launching in that way without kind of I don't know, thinking more critically about it. We learned really, really fast. We were able to change course and adjust. Um, mm -hmm. Thank God for being a, a nimble, small, um, agile company that can make those uh, changes really quickly. And we learned on the fly, we made changes on the fly, and now we are really solidly successful in the context of Japan. We're I'm very proud of the team there and all the work that they're doing on a daily basis to increase awareness, to drive additional interest in the brand, um, and, and it's really working. That's amazing. Uh, the sarcasm bit, the Australian sarcasm, Koala sure. as a brand has really played into the Australian sense of humor in Australia in a really effective way through uh, its billboard advertising. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly how I first came to know about it. And I've definitely shared sure. some of your billboards around. Can you talk a little bit around like that strategy? Uh, it's interesting that we haven't given, as you pointed out, the Australian sense of humor. I actually haven't seen many brands uh do that as well in fact i don't think i've seen any brand do it as well in australia like can you talk a little bit about that process and effectiveness absolutely thank you for the compliment um you know what and, and i can only i can only take credit for things that have happened in the last six months i i, I want to be very clear that none of the, yep. the fantastic um, billboard stunts that took place in the last couple of years were my idea by any means however um i i can talk about the strategy and the ideas that go into it there is a specific privilege associated with being a small nimble young company that has low awareness and that is that when you take a risk like a high a highly sarcastic billboard or even kind of inching on uh like the poke being too hard that sort of thing it's very low risk for the brand because if you have low awareness and it doesn't resonate or it doesn't work there's not a whole lot to lose right there there's yeah. there's there's really not a lot of negative impact to the brand. However, if it works, which in this case uh, it did, 
it has magnificent positive impact on the brand because it launches you into the zeitgeist. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. something all of us marketers are always trying to do is participate in culture, um, maybe even turn a cultural moment into something interesting for our brands. And that's something that Koala did really, really well from the outset was see a lot of these competitive opportunities to sort of, I don't know, take the piss out of one another, right? And, and really be mm -hmm. quite fun about it. Some of the stuff really worked and some of it didn't. But you guys, you know, the, the general public isn't aware of the stuff that didn't work because we were only getting coverage on the stuff that did. Um, and that's yeah. a really specific privilege for a young startup. Some, you know, Qantas couldn't take the same uh, risk because mm. their brand is too well known, uh, is too ubiquitous across Australia that if they make a mistake, they they, they have a price to pay, right? For for a yeah. much longer period of time than a, a new newbie startup does. Um, so now yeah. we're in this really interesting middle zone where we're not everybody in Australia knows who Koala is. We're getting there. We're, we're working real hard to make that the case. Um, but as we get there, we have to bring in our cheeky sense of humor and just turn it up a little bit, uh, mature it a little bit, right? And, and bring the brand forward so that we're talking to a larger audience of people and we're not ostracizing anybody, um, which is a really delicate da dance. And it's we will make a mistake. We'll, we'll kind of adjust course as we go, hopefully continue to have some of that benefit of being a slightly smaller company. Um, where we'll continue to learn as we grow and figure out and really nail that tone of voice so that we're not losing what makes Koala awesome and fun and cheeky and weird and hilarious. Uh, but yeah. we are kind of turning up the brand into that next level of maturity as we grow. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that sometimes what helped you get to where you are can't be the thing you do to get to a further stage of growth. And it's yeah. like... How do you um, navigate that, I think, is really the question of why some brands grow to be huge businesses and some hit a ceiling that they can't seem to get past. It is a tricky problem to solve. And, and going back to your um, uh, kind of comments around the, co the competitive set, that it also factors into what we're trying to do from a range expansion perspective, right? So we never mm -hmm. intended to be a single product company. That wasn't ever our goal, but it is a challenge. You're right. It's a tricky dance um, to figure out how to continue the spirit of innovation, continue to sort of fan the flames of innovation in a company as you get more mature, um, right? Yeah. You've got to keep the bedrock and the foundation in the right place, but you also have to provide the space, the energy, the opportunity to make mistakes, to fail fast, and to innovate. Um, and so what I've found in my experience, and specifically at Koala, is trying to really create um, and protect that innovation space is really important for all of us at Koala. Um, there are folks who are solely responsible for really seeing through the daily activities of our business. And then there are folks whose you know key responsibilities are innovation, thinking outside the box, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I find that that um, separation or bifurcation of responsibilities can be really helpful. Even if you rotate them on a monthly or quarterly or even annual basis, there can be a lot of value in really just giving one person or a group of people, a team of people, the opportunity to only innovate and be really focused on that. That's one way to keep the uh, the spirit of it alive. And do you do that by, I know some brands, they pick a geography as their, like, this is the market we'll run a lot of our experiments in, mm -hmm. depending how they go, we'll roll them out globally or not. Do you do that or how do you think about it? So we do that from a marketing perspective, but not from a product perspective. So um, oh, the... 
the fun thing for us is that, you know, our goal is always for our products, our physical products to be as um, ubiquitous as possible, right? Unique and interesting, but as ubiquitous as possible across Australia and any other market that we operate in. From a marketing perspective, we're always testing and learning in smaller geographies. Um, we change the geography frequently so that we're not getting stale in our information um, and that we're not stagnating among a particular group of, of, uh, of consumers. Um, but that geographical um, distinction is really, really important for us as we learn how to position ourselves across the various regions of Australia. And then certainly as we grow internationally. And I think, so one of the things that it sounds like is happening is um, your approach has had to somewhat change from the start, even though it was by design from the start. The, mm -hmm. And when you started, you know, buying a mattress online or buying furniture online, was extremely uncommon uh, and you've kind of proven that people are willing to do that. Is is the version of that that you're facing now furniture more broadly or what is the thing that Koala as a brand is trying to do now that uh, is far less common but you're seeing the early signs of success around? So I think the far less common piece for us right now um, comes through the brand in two very key ways. One is in the service and the level of service that we provide. And then the second is in the product. Um, both are equal within our company. Uh, and I think it's really important to note that everything we do is about putting the customer at the center, right? So we're not a revenue or a profit first company. We're not a um, process or policy or logistics company first. We are a customer first company um, that is 100% focused on making sure we're doing the right thing by the customer. That means that from a customer service and experience perspective, that we will always go above and beyond because we believe it's the right thing to do. We will do everything we can to um, honor the four-hour delivery. We will do everything we can to ensure that the product you get is exactly what you wanted it to be and that it's serving the purpose you needed it to be and we'll fix it if it's not. Um, all of those commitments are core to the way we operate. And then on the product side, it's really a similar ethos in terms of what problems are we solving for the consumer. So, um, you know, we start oftentimes a lot of our product development starts with the question of what's annoying, frustrating, or impossible about X, um, buying a dining room table, buying a sofa, buying a mattress, uh, all of the, like, those are the, um, the, the blanks, right. That we're filling in is what's really frustrating about those experiences and how can we make it better? Um, whether that's our no tools assembly or the simplicity of our furniture design, um, implementing strong ergonomics and everything that we're doing from a seating perspective, uh, making sure that all that, uh, everything that we're doing from a product development perspective is as sustainable as possible. That is never mm -hmm. a, a finished journey. We're always trying to do better um, in, in terms of taking care of the earth and, and doing our part for sustainability. But that's how we think about our continual challenges in front of us um, is always asking the questions from the point of the point of view of the customer. Um, and we found that to be a really um, generous guiding light in, in all that we're doing. I forget the name of the brand. It was a shoe company in the US. I think it was like called Shoe Dazzle or something. It was, I was listening to an interview with the founder a few years ago, and he was talking about the pain of free returns as an e-commerce mm -hmm. company and how much like that can chew away at your margins and how much that was problematic for his company and that he was in a bind because it's kind of become an industry norm, but mm. if it's embraced at any material level, it really hurts your ability to run a sustainable business. You all, I imagine 
you would have that tension as a company too, where it's like, we want to give the best customer service possible. That's why we've got our return policy as generous as it mm-hmm. is. But boy, if a certain percentage of our customers return mattresses, it's going to make it hard for this business to be sustainable. What, what has that yeah. been like for you as a brand? I, I think um, oftentimes e-commerce for some reason, and, and this is not a comment on the um, the shoe brand that you're, you're talking about in the States, but uh, there is some, for some reason, there is an association of mid to low level quality with e-commerce, right? And so the propensity re- to return is much higher for the consumers because they're not getting what they thought they were getting, or they're not happy with the quality of the product, or it doesn't fit, um, or you know, if it's shoes or if it's an outfit or clothing, uh, oftentimes fit is really challenging uh, to do in online com- uh, online e-commerce shopping. And so w- I actually really think it goes back to the product itself um, and how we are communicating with the consumer about what the product is. When I hear about the challenge of you know, free returns or, uh, or returns in general from an e-commerce perspective, my first question is about the quality of the product that's being returned. One of the mm-hmm. things that Koala really benefits from is that we're able to offer 120 night free trial, we're offer, able to offer free returns, et cetera, because we really believe in our product, right? And mm-hmm. it has proven over the last five years to be a really sustainable business model to have the highest quality product we can possibly offer our consumers and do the free returns because we're not getting returns for quality reasons. We're getting returns for, eh, you know, that I, I'm, I'm in the 3% of people that that mattress is just not quite right for. Oh, I mm-hmm. measured incorrectly so the sofa doesn't fit or like that kind of thing. But we're not getting um, returns because I don't like this product. Um, and mm-hmm. that is a really big benefit to our business and part of why uh, the business model is working for us. How do you balance that against uh, competitors as well? Because I mm-hmm. feel like, is there any... I don't know, tension where, as you've seen more and more competitors pop up, I feel like in the direct to consumer mattress space, like something happened where I've never seen so many people try to copycat a business before. Um, It really was the in vogue thing to do about six years ago is start a, a direct to consumer mattress company. I assume some of them tried to compete on quality as well. Did that make it harder for you as a company or no being earlier in that space having built more trust in that space kind of differentiated you for the long term yeah so we continue to benefit from um our longevity in the space in comparison to our competitors and um from a a relationship with the customers right um i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that word of mouth really goes very far for us because we have a trusting relationship with our existing customers that then benefits uh, a lot of our new customers as well i think the competitive set is always an interesting conversation to me um and this is a personal view that when you're thinking of if you spend most of your time as a marketer or as as a business leader, um, thinking about your competitive set, then you're not spending enough time thinking about your company and how you're leading or going forward, right? Um, so if yeah. you're always looking sideways, you're never looking forward. That I, I mean, there's, I think, 35 different ways to say that particular um, phrase, but 
my point in doing so is that I, I want to be aware. I want to I want to know what's happening in the competitive set, but I'm really focused mostly on providing the best experience to our customers that Koala can do. And if there's something mm -hmm. I could learn from the competitive set, uh, even direct competitive uh, versus the sort of ancillary competitive set, uh, oftentimes there's a lot of learning available, uh, but it's how you apply it under your brand's lens. So for me, how do I apply it under a Koala lens that I think is the most important? Yeah, I don't disagree. It's weird. We were chatting with some previous guests around. There's something intangible that consumers pick up on when a brand is being authentic versus when a brand mm. is just a copycat. And it insulates the authentic brand and it makes it hard for the copycat brand to uh, get any meaningful form of traction. And I think that's what we have seen play out in the mattress space. What do you Agreed. put that down? What do you put that down to? It's a, I want to understand this phenomenon more because it's real, but it's hard to articulate. It's really hard to articulate, and I'm not sure that there's data that's going to like you know help us pin it down mm -hmm. or, or answer. I agree. You, you've articulated it better than I've been able to in the past. That that sort of insulation um, of the we'll call it the champion or the first you know the champion brand that was first pardon me first to market and it was able to mm -hmm. build the long term relationships. I think it's really, um, I put it down to honesty, transparency, um, value proposition, right? Uh, the way that the original brand is presenting themselves. And that's where I think competitive analysis can get really distracting, right? Because if you're looking at your competitive set, oftentimes that's with a really short timeline view. So you're looking at you know a month or maybe a couple of months um, to see what they've been up to. And it can inevitably, it will impact the way you're thinking about how you provide your brand uh, to the customer. And I think that's a really dangerous space to be in because you are, um, you're not always aware of that influence in the moment, right? And so mm -hmm. inevitably that's taking you away from your brand ethos. It's taking you away from the way you think about the brand. Um, and so it's really important for me to stay centered on on our core ethos, what we believe in, um, our core values and how we're presenting that to the market uh, so that yep. we remain genuine in the space. The one thing I've wondered about with Koala is when you started and even probably to date, you had such a strong... Australian brand identity and so much was seemingly built around the Australian market. Uh, it sounds like that's been an advantage going into markets like Japan, going into markets like the US. How have you found that transition? Are those things an advantage? I imagine it's, uh, it's a far more noisy environment in the US and so to get cut through is tricky. I think the Australian sarcasm would probably be dangerous uh, for a brand to do in the US. Like, what have you found to work? You know, it's interesting. So uh, the US is sort of always on my peripheral. I am based in the US and I am an American myself. So, um, you know, it's not, we're not launching in the US anytime soon, but it is mm -hmm. um, interesting to sort of watch the competitive space, but competitive space both in Western Europe um, and in North America, because it's complicated, right? It's really mm. crowded. It's really complicated from a messaging perspective. More than anything, consumers are confused uh, and overwhelmed. And so they they end up in uh, choice paralysis, which is something that, you know, Koala spends a lot of time focused on. How do we not uh, put our customers in choice paralysis? We want to be as simple mm -hmm. as possible. 
And so when I look at the consumer landscape uh, in our competitive set, in markets that we may or may not be in in the future, it's really challenging to figure out, okay, how are we going to solve that? What would it look like for us to solve that consumer paralysis, that um, overwhelming sense of choice? And because there, there's a hundred and I'm sure there's 150 plus um, competitors in just the mattress space in the United States. Yeah. And that's insane, right? Like that's crazy. But again, the beauty of sort of the broad view uh, is that if there's 150 competitors that are operating and they're all about doing the same thing, you know, close to doing the same thing in any industry, whether it's mattresses or elsewise, um, the brand that chooses to do it differently, to operate differently, mm -hmm. is going to be the one that succeeds. Um, you yeah. know, uh, not to use my experience again, um, kind of previous company, but Netflix and Blockbuster, right? It's it's kind of the age old story of Blockbuster was going to overtake Netflix. It was absolutely, it was in every investor's mind that that was going to happen eventually. And it just didn't turn out that way because Netflix chose to operate differently uh, than the market mm -hmm. expected them to. And, and I really believe that's the way to be successful in very crowded marketplaces. Do you think though people have wised up to that dynamic? It feels like absolutely that, I mean, even most of the guests we have on this show are successful companies and they're successful companies because they did mm -hmm. something that at the time was unconventional, but turned out to be true and what people wanted and now has become conventional. And with that movement has seen their success. I don't think if you were to chat to executives who are facing this dynamic today where they have slowly become the old way of doing things, I think they would be onto this dynamic and understanding that like, no, we have to actually, we can't just take our physical store and put it on a e-commerce shop. We need to radically change the way we treat yep. customers and, and do it in a digital first way, do customer centric way. So how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I truly believe that it is not a lack of awareness. Um, so if mm. you are using your example, if you're in the company that is, quote unquote, doing it the old way or kind of, you know, stagnating in the old way, inevitably, every story that we've seen in the past is that there are always canaries in the coal mine. There are always people raising the red flag in those companies saying, I think we need to do it differently. I think we got to turn around. I think we've got to mm. put this under a different lens. The challenge is, is that leadership in those companies, A, usually struggles to hear that uh, because they're mm -hmm. focused on short-term revenue goals, right? They're, they're focused on delivering that next quarter's profit, and which is real. That's a, a necessary yeah. uh, you know, business practice, but it disallows them from seeing the longer-term strategy, the larger picture that would you know, allow them to notice, hey, we probably need to change course. And then the second piece is, is that inevitably, or usually I should say, those companies are very large, which makes it yeah. really difficult to change strategy, core products, um, the core offering, right? Because it is entrenched in thousands of people uh, and the yeah. way that that company works. It's trying to turn an oil tanker around and it's really hard. Um, so it's not because people don't make the effort. Most of those companies have innovation groups. They've got um, you know groups of people that are really focused on trying to prevent that from happening. Uh, but it is a challenge for leadership to be able to hear those recommendations mm -hmm. and then be able to act on them because turning that ship around is really difficult. Yeah. It's interesting. One of our previous guests, they sold tiles um, online mm. and that tile market 
was very established in the physical world. And the way it was established was through um, franchises. And so like James's Tile Shop and I have franchisees all around the country selling tiles. But if I start an online store, my franchisees aren't going to be happy that they're losing sales in their geography to our like online store. And so even to your point, I think, as you've as some big companies have expanded their incentive alignment and structure is um, diametrically opposed it, it, it to the opportunity. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and is actually it's, like an extremely real blocker. Yeah. It's a huge blocker, but I think, so that's a really good, I'm going to use your tile shop because I like that example. Um, that is a really huge opportunity for me for innovation, right? The way that I look at that opportunity is, okay, so if if, if we just launch an online store, uh, that is going to hurt my franchisee's business. So how do I bring them in on the scheme? How do I get them to participate in the experience so that they can replace the revenue they're going to lose from the brick and mortar experience and mm-hmm. re- replace it with the online experience? So there's it's still a physical product you've still got logistics in place um and so maybe the the closest franchisee to the person who's ordered the tile is the one delivering it and getting the revenue for it or there's a revenue Mm -hmm. split agreement or that kind of thing oftentimes i think what is challenging for companies is that they stop at my franchisees my stakeholders my boss my person my customer won't like it so they just stop Right. That's the, that's the, that's the end of the conversation instead of going, okay, they're probably not going to like it. How do I change that? How how do I do something about that? Um, It's the second question that seems to not get asked very often. That is a hundred percent. I, I love that. You know, like I think a, that in that, that example solves it. I think if any of those tile bosses are listening to this, they're probably going to be pricking themselves. They probably paid some management consultant a crazy amount of money. And it's just like, no, no, the simple answer is you change it this way. Done. Yep. Next. (laughs) Bring them in. Next. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think that second question is a really interesting insight where it's true of a lot of things and definitely in business where people seem to stop at the first objection where there's more nuance than that. And actually a hybrid approach, or there's ways that you could take that objection and take like attributes around it to help solve the problem. That's even probably more powerful than the original idea itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that. Hopefully we, we're not going to get some hate mail from these tile bosses, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Right. And so it was a hypothetical. I, thing. It's okay. Yeah. And so you as a brand, how do you, how are you insulating against falling into that trap as you've become more mature? It sounds like you're doing a lot around the innovation as it comes to marketing and you do a lot of research around product lines. But mm-hmm. is there more than that? Like, it, I feel like the threat is so um, large and it's so common yep. that as companies mature, they open themselves up to competitors in areas of their like structural weakness. How are you yep. thinking about that as you mature? So the the number one challenge uh, that, that we're all facing is not getting paralyzed by that fear of the unknown, right? The thing that we can't mm-hmm. answer that we don't know is coming, etc. You can do 
a lot for risk mitigation. You can do a lot for preparation strategies, et cetera. But when that work is done, that needs to be enough. That needs to be satisfying enough so that you can focus on your business and what's happening around you and in the near-term future, uh, the things that you can see and can predict. I think for Koala, it, it is there's two key benefits to the way that we are growing right now. So every time we uh, end up with, sorry, every time we hire somebody new, um, we're adding a, a significant amount of variety to the way we think about things, right? And so oftentimes, if you think about a company that's only, let, let's talk about a company that's hiring 5% new staff every year, right? Uh, but against a rather large company, that 5% has a hard time influencing or bringing new ideas to the table because they're joining mm -hmm. a large machine in motion, right? But for something like, for uh, for Koala, what's really great about us being a small and nimble and ex you know exciting company on that front is every time we add a new voice to the mix, they are loud, they are empowered, and we want to hear from them because we don't ever want to get stuck in the rut of doing things the same way over and over again because that's just what works. Mm -hmm. it, it, that's not the way that you build a sustainably uh, built company. And so um, I, I think that's one of the key ways that we really bring um, those new voices to the table and pay attention, listen really closely to what they're saying and what they're observing. Because um, oftentimes mm -hmm. they can see a lot of things that we can't after you've been in the business for two, three, four months or two, three, four years. Um, it's very hard to see things that the new people can. Well, I think this show has all been around unconventional approaches and, and how businesses have taken those to be successful. I think the thing that we're increasingly focusing on is then you that's a state that you have to constantly live in if you want to remain successful and i think that approach that you've you've outlined is really going to help you achieve that so congratulations on the success so far and uh best of luck for everything in the future and thank you for joining us thank you very much for having me on today i really appreciate it, it was great to chat with you Thanks for tuning in to Unconventional Business by HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to, please subscribe and I'll catch you on the next episode.